Morning, everybody. Are you guys ready to surrender? Um, just to clarify, not to me, but to the Lord. Are you guys ready to surrender? You should, you should be. I can't think of a more fitting song that goes with this series that we're uh, talking about. When we're talking about the authority of God, and we are intentionally waving that white flag before Him like we did last Sunday, and then to sing that song, I Surrender. And we sang, I don't know if you caught those words, but in the beginning, towards the beginning of that song, there's those words that says, speak to me, I surrender. That is exactly, I just want to continue Ryan's prayer, and I want to pray those specific words, that we would surrender, and actually even our minds and our hearts, that they would, our, our hearts would be uh, soft, and our minds open to hearing what, what the Holy Spirit would say to us. Because as we talk about this series on authority, again, this Sunday, I said it last Sunday, the same thing, there is so much more applicable to our lives than what will get said in English today, that you need the Holy Spirit to wake it up in you. And He can do that directly. And so I'm going to just, that's what I mean. When we surrender to the Lord, that's what we're asking to do this morning. So with that, and if you agree with what I say in the prayer, you can say amen at the end of it. Lord... The Lord, the word Maranatha comes to my mind again, Lord, like it did earlier this morning. And it means, come Lord Jesus, or the Lord Jesus come, which could be a reference to when you did already come, could also be a call to please come. And so Lord, either way, we celebrate that you did come, we celebrate that you are coming, and could you right now, Lord, Maranatha, come and speak to us through your Holy Spirit. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Last week... We talked about a couple things, and if you didn't hear the sermon from last week, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to it, not because the guy who spoke last week is a very good speaker, but because there is some good content there that you need to understand, and in order for you, in case you hear today's sermon and you're like, well, hold on a second, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, you might be more tempted to push back a little bit on t than on today's sermon, okay? So you should go back and listen to it. But we t what we talked about, we made some interesting, I made an interesting statement. I said that any time that we look at the news, and I'm thinking specifically of like national news, and you see an article that talks about a story maybe about somebody abusing their authority, or you see an article that talks about some someone undermining someone else's authority, which by the way, those two things make up a lot of the news, okay? When you see those things, they actually are evidence that we are in a spiritual battle, even if those people don't realize that we're in a spiritual battle. But we can see it. And every time those kinds of things come out of our society, we actually, that's evidence that we're in a spiritual battle. We also then learned, and we already knew this, but we, we pointed out very clearly from Scripture that God is sovereign. Amen? And so that was like a looking through this idea of authority through a really, really wide lens, infinitely wide, that would say God is sovereign. And he's even a sovereign, sovereign over authorities. And we looked at the example of, what was that guy's name? King uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Good. I love it. Okay? We looked at him, and he was actually a pretty good example that even when Nebuchadnezzar, who was wicked and cruel and ruthless, 
God is even sovereign over him. Today we're going to take that really wide scope lens and we're just going to really tighten it up and focus on some other authority. We're going to talk about government and related authorities. Here's a picture to get your wheels turning. Okay? We're talking about the leaders of our country and our province and their designates. People of authority in our country and in our province. And as we go through this sermon today, we are going to be talking, I'm going to refer to lots of scripture. And I'm going to purposely use the NLT translation because the NLT just has a way of, it's pretty easy language and it just flows and we're not going to do a very big word study on any particular word. But I'm trying to get the context of scripture into a sermon. And so we're just going to use the NLT because it flows a little quicker. And I'm going to purposely, unashamedly, refer to a lot of scripture. Because if you're following along our Bible reading plan as a church, you will have read Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 says that God's word is sweeter than honey, more precious than money. It's our light to our path. It's designed to preserve our life and is established to last forever. Amen? Man, if we know that, we should not be ashamed to refer to some scripture. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to start in the Old Testament with Proverbs 21, verse 1. Tell me if this verse is true. The king's heart, and by the way, you just saw the king's picture on that paper. I'm not on the paper. You just saw the king's picture on the screen. The king, as it were. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord, and the Lord guides it wherever he pleases. True? Come on, guys, it's in Scripture. True? That is true. Would you, and if you're not sure, well, you know, it's, uh, it's in Proverbs. Okay, let me ask you, let me, I'll, I'll slow down a little bit. Would you think that Moses would think that verse was true? He never even read it. Solomon wrote it. Moses wasn't alive then, but whatever. If Moses had read it, do you think he would think it was true? Come on, you guys know the story. Let's go back and talk about, you guys remember the story of Moses when he's trying to lead the Israelites out of Egypt? And there's that king in Egypt, we always refer to him as Pharaoh. And Pharaoh keeps, what do you keep saying? We want to go, and he said, no. Why did he say that? Let's read. Exodus 4.21. And the Lord told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt... Go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I have empowered you to do. But you guys heartily read the yellows, okay? But I will harden his heart so he will refuse to let the people go. The Lord said to Moses, you go and show him those miracles I've allowed you to do, but I am going to harden his heart. The Lord is going to harden his heart. And then after every one of the first six plagues, you'll read in your Bible that it says, Moses, he had reason to give in, but then he, his heart got hard. And it, would either, it either says that the Lord hardened his heart, or it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hardened his heart. But then it will say right after that, because of what the Lord told Moses, which is God hardening his heart on purpose. And then after the sixth plague, look at what the Lord says to Pharaoh. 
By now, I could have lifted my hand and struck you and your people with a plague to wipe you off the face of the earth. But I have spared you for a purpose, to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. Does it sound like God's in control at this point? Yes, God's in control, okay? And then after the seventh plague, then the Lord said to Moses, return to Pharaoh and make your demands again. I have made him and his officials stubborn so I can display my miraculous signs among them. I've also done it so that you can tell your children and grandchildren about how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and about the signs I displayed among them so that you will know that I am the Lord. And I am the Lord. That's what we learned last Sunday. Does it sound like God's in control? Of course he's in control. And after every plague, he keeps saying that according to what the, Lord, the words that Moses, the, the Lord told Moses, he would harden Pharaoh's heart. But after the tenth plague, finally, according to the Lord's design, Pharaoh, his heart softened enough to let the people go. And they go. But God isn't done, and all the people, the, the Egyptians are favorably disposed towards the people. They give them a whole bunch of stuff, and off you go. But the Lord isn't done getting glory through Pharaoh, their, uh, the Egyptian king. And so look at this. In Exodus 14, he, this is only a few days later, he, the Lord tells Moses, and once again, I will. Who's speaking here? God is speaking. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Do you think he's in control? I think Moses would probably agree with Proverbs 21 verse 1. But let me ask you this question. In whose favor did this all work out to? Answer carefully. God's. We learned last Sunday, he does whatever pleases him. And he had a master plan, and he could lead Pharaoh's heart like a river wherever he pleases. But there will have been people, when we look, we look at the whole story real quick like this in three minutes, it's obvious, oh yeah, God's in control. Those people should have just trusted God. But some of those people were stuck. Their whole lifetime was lived in slavery. It's a little, little tougher for them to see God's master plan. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a master plan. You with me? God is sovereign even over kings. And even over kings who are ruthless against his people. There's other lessons that we can learn in the Old Testament, including a lesson we're going to learn from King Saul. He's uh, the first king of Israel. God's first anointed king over Israel. And we're going to learn a lesson from him from one very interesting day, okay? So early in that day, now the, the Israelites, they, had, they were under serious oppression. This is 1 Samuel 14, by the way. They were under serious oppression by the, uh, by the Philistines. I called them the Pharisees before, and that was wrong. They're the Philistines. Anyway, the Philistines are putting so much pressure on the Israelites that they've actually taken away all their sharp objects, okay? 
There's no spears, no swords, nothing. They even took their blacksmiths away, so these guys cannot fight. Nobody in the nation has a, has a sword to carry except for two guys, Saul and Jonathan. And so one morning, this is the interesting day, one morning uh, Jonathan, he kind of sneaks out of the camp, nobody knows, he has his armor bearer with him, and they go and they come up to a Philistine outpost and they end up killing 20 of those Philistine soldiers. At the same time, God sends an earthquake and the Philistines get scared and they scatter. And King Saul sees this happening and he's like, this is my chance. We can get these guys. We don't even need weapons. Go get them. And he is so adamant that in his zeal for conquest, he makes a very foolish decision. And he says, I am putting my entire army under an oath. You guys cannot eat one thing until tonight when we have, by then we will have conquered the enemy. And until then, nobody eats a thing. And they run off into battle. Jonathan, as these guys are running through the forest and chasing the Philistine, Jonathan comes along and he joins the rest of the army. At least they got one guy with a sword. And, and he's, as they're running and chasing the Philistines, he sees some honey on the ground in a honeycomb, and he takes some, and he eats it, and his eyes are brightened, and he's got a little more energy, and the guys beside him look over and say, what are you doing? The king, your dad, put us under an oath. And when Jonathan hears about that oath, he says, are you for real? That was foolish. Don't you see how my eyes got brighter when I had something to eat? That's ridiculous what he did. It would have been way better if he had allowed us to eat. Then we could have slaughtered those Philistines even more than we are now. And he's actually true. He's actually right. The day goes on. They, do get lots of, they actually still get lots of plunder and all that. And they get some cattle and stuff. And they have enough. They have a big feast in the evening. And then look at what Saul says to the people. But Saul's not done chasing the Philistines. Then Saul said, let's chase those Philistines all night. They've been doing it all day. Now they're going to do it all night yet and plunder them until sunrise. Let's destroy every last one of them. And his men replied, we'll do whatever you think is best. But the priest said, I like this guy, he said, let's ask God first. That's a good idea. So Saul asked God, should we go after the Philistines? And he would have been asked this question with, by casting lots or uh, using Urim and Thummim. And he said, he asked God, should we go after the Philistines? Will you help us defeat them? But God made no reply that day. Then Saul said to the leaders, something's wrong. I want all my army commanders to come here. We must find out what sin was committed today. King Saul correctly assumed that there was sin in the camp, and that's why God didn't answer his prayer. Because we know that when we sin... God actually turns away and will not listen any longer, according to Isaiah 59, verse 2, and so on, right? And we know that Saul was actually correct in assuming that because later in the story, they would again cast lots to, de to determine out of all these commanders, including Saul and Jonathan, who was the one who sinned, and God, using those casting of lots, singled out Jonathan from all the other leaders. He sinned. And Jonathan comes, and he's kind of like this, Really? What was my sin? For eating a bit of honey? 
There's nothing wrong with eating honey. Except if the God's anointed appointed authority said don't. And it was sin. There's other stories we can learn from Saul about uh, submitting to authorities that make uh, interesting decisions and so on. Shortly after this story that I just told you about in 1 Samuel 14, the great prophet Samuel comes and anoints a boy named David to become the next king of Israel. And it is very, very obvious that the Lord's hand is with David. Okay? Stories like David and Goliath and so on. It was evident that God's with David. The people were with David, more so than they were even with Saul. If they were into having a democracy, I'm sure that if they had taken a vote then, David would have been the guy. And it's also obvious that while that's all going on, Saul keeps making bad decisions. And so you think, this is all very obvious here. You can see what God's doing. He's taking Saul out, and he's going to put David in. I get it, Lord. But while that's all going on, Saul does drastic things like tries to kill David. Again and again. David should be his right-hand man, but Saul flies into fits of rage, and he tries to kill David. He even dispatches his entire army to go hunt him down to kill him. It would end up taking like 20 years for David, after he was anointed, to become actually the king of all of Israel. It was like something like at least 13 years before he was even king over like Judah. Do you know what that's like? That's like as if you were anointed as the next prime minister of Canada, but then our current leader would stay in power for another four terms all the while trying to kill you and hunt you down, sending police forces and sending the military to hunt you down and kill you. That's what's going on. And I want you to understand that in the midst of that, Saul is now coming to kill David. David's hiding in a cave, and when Saul comes in to use the washroom in that cave, this is what David's men tell him. Here's your opportunity, David's men whisper to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. The Lord knows I shouldn't have done that to my Lord the King, he said to his men. The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the King and attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. That's the Lord's heart, even if the king is foolish and wicked and, and cruel and trying to hunt him down. Listen, most Christians in Canada, here's a really big understatement, okay? Most Christians in Canada have not been anointed by God to be the next prime minister. Okay, you with me? In addition to that, our prime minister is not trying to kill us. You with me? Two big understatements. And yet, we are very quick to go and cut off a corner of his robe. 
and justify it. Give you another story. There's another time David sees Saul coming to kill him. Saul's got his army. He's coming to kill David. David sees him coming. And for whatever reason, Saul and his whole army fall into a good sleep that night. And David sees that. And he takes one of his mighty men, one of these guys that could probably take out an army by himself, Abishai. And, he, and David and Abishai, they walk through the, David's army while they're sleeping. And they come right up to where Saul is sleeping. And he's sleeping on the ground there. He's got his spear jabbed into the ground and his water jug beside him. And Abishai says to King David, now's your opportunity. <laughs> Go to the next slide. In uh, 1 Samuel 24, now's your opportunity, David whispered to him. Except he whispered, he didn't say it that loud. Uh, Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward. You know what? I'm just reading the completely wrong verse here. Sorry, Riley. I grabbed the wrong verse. <laughs> David didn't creep forward and cut off a hem of his robe. That was the previous story I just told you about. Okay? This is what Abishai said. Abishai said, God has surely handed you, your enemy over to you this time. Abishai whispered to David, let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike twice. And he wouldn't have. No, David said, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday, or he will die of old age or in battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed, but take his spear and that jug of water beside his head and let's get out of here. Do you see what David is doing here? He is entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. David is entrusting himself to God. He's leaving this in God's hand, this problem, rather than taking control of it himself, even when given the opportunity. He is fighting with his spiritual authority, in other words, God's authority, rather than trying to use his own physical authority. And so David and Abishai, they grab that spear and water jug, they cross the valley, come up on the hill on the other side, and when Saul and his, all his guys wake up, they have a little conversation. And David says, with not a stitch of skepticism or cynicism or sarcasm in his voice, he says, here is your spear, O king, David replied. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord gives his own reward for doing good and for being loyal. And I refused to kill you even when the Lord placed you in my power. For you are the Lord's anointed one. Now may the Lord value my life even as I have valued yours today. And may he rescue me from all my troubles. David is entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Do you get it? And I'm quoting 1 Peter 2 and we'll get there in a little bit, but that's what David is doing. And so the Old Testament seems to have a bit of a pattern of things here that seem to agree with Proverbs 21.1 that says the Lord just guides kings wherever he pleases. 
And I haven't told you about a whole bunch of other kings. For instance, in, when Moses was leading the people through the desert, there's uh, King Sihon of Heshbon. The Lord, your God, made him stubborn and defiant just so that you guys could conquer him. That was the Lord's plan. Many years later, fast forward to when the Israelites are taken captive into Babylon. When they're taken captive into an enemy nation, the Lord moved the heart of the king of the enemy nation, Cyrus, king of Persia, to send people back to the country he had just conquered or had been conquered to start rebuilding their temple. That doesn't make human sense. But it does make sense because the Lord moved in his heart. The Lord is guiding him. And later the Lord changed the attitude of Darius, who would never support a project like that, but then the Lord changed his attitude to also support the same project. And then, years later, the Lord put it into the heart of King Artaxerxes to actually say to Ezra, when you guys are building that temple, whatever you need, here's a blank check, whatever you need, it's yours, go get that done. That doesn't make sense. But that is examples of the Lord leading kings like a river. Last week, we learned that God is the ultimate authority. Heaven rules. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the king even of these kings. Okay? Now we just looked at a whole bunch of examples of kings. Last week, Nebuchadnezzar. It's fairly obvious when you read those stories that God of the Old Testament seems to always have a plan and is working on a master plan. And he will even lead kings, they might not even know it, and he leads them to, where he, to, to places and to do, make decisions that will line up with his ultimate plan. You with me? That leads us to one obvious question. If that's how the God of the Old Testament was, what's the obvious question? If that's, if that's how God was operating in the Old Testament, 2,000 years ago we crossed the line and now we're in the New Testament era, what's the question? Does he still operate the same way? Does the New Testament have something to say about this? So we've got to ask that question. Does the New Testament have something to say about how God will even use an authority on purpose? And the answer to that is a massive capital letters, yes, with lots of exclamation marks. And so I'm going to look at two passages out of the New Testament that talk about that, and I'm going to call those the primary passages that we're going to look at this morning. And there, you'll know that they're primary passages because there's going to be blue letters that, where, where it says the reference. And then when I use supporting other passages from the New Testament to support those primary passages, I'll just leave those in white so you know that those are supporting passages, okay? How many, how many primary passages out of the New Testament? Two. Here we go. Here's the first one, Romans 13. You know it's a primary passage because it's in blue, okay? And you guys just heartily read with me. I think this is fairly straightforward, but let's go. Everyone... Woo. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, period. Did everybody get that? 
Like there's not a lot of interpretation needed to understand that sentence. For all authority, this is what we learned last week. Now, you, if you were wondering how to apply last week to your life, here it is. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. Let me throw in a little supporting passage, just so you know we're not just taking this out of just using one verse that could be a little hard to understand. Not really, but whatever. Titus 3, 1-2 says this. Remind, this is Paul's words to Titus. Remind the believers to... Huh. Kind of exactly the same thing. Remind, but why, let me ask you a question. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. Why would... Titus have to remind the people of that. They should already know that. They have the Old Testament. We just went through it. It's obvious. They weren't doing it. We don't naturally do that. Raise your hand if you just naturally submit to the government and all their rules. Nobody does that. They needed a reminder just like we do. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient. And by the way, I think both of these verses are referring directly about the government and government officials. But even if you argued with me and said, no, no, Delan, this is just, you know, kind of a painting a picture for everyone, that's fine. The government is included in everybody, so it still applies to the government, okay? They should be obedient. This is you and me. We should be obedient, always ready to do what is good, and they must not slander anyone. And must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Do you see how we go from we should submit instead of slander in that verse? Both words are in there. Do you see it? Christians should not slander, but rather submit. You guys with me? Say it one more time. Instead of slander, we should submit. That's pretty straightforward. Let's go back to our Primary passage in Romans, okay? We'll keep working our way through. Verse 3. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. Verse 4. The authorities are God's servants, just like Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, if you remember from last week, is a wicked, cruel, ruthless man called by God his servant. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. That is where a lot of Christians go wrong. That is where I have gone wrong in the past on occasion, and I have to be careful I don't go back to that. Our motivation for obeying the government is not only so that we don't get caught. You with me? 
It is also to have a clear conscience between me and God. Christians are sometimes tempted to do things that would be disobedient towards the government because they know they're not going to get caught. The government might not be able to see you, but God can. He always does. And it's a twofold reason. We also want to have a good relationship and a clean conscience before God. That's why we submit. You can make this even stronger with a lot of evidence from Scripture. Because you guys know very well Ephesians 5.21. If you're, if you're familiar with how uh, the Bible instructs a marriage to operate, in Ephesians 5.21 it says, we ought to submit to one another. It's describing every relationship we're in. And then it gives the reason for why we submit, which is the same reason we submit to the government. Submit to one another. Why? Because that person really deserves you to submit to them? And they've really earned your favor and they've really earned their respect? Is that what it says? What does it say? Out of reverence to God, out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here, we submit to the authorities, not only because we're worried about getting caught, but out of reverence for God. And in case you're wondering, really? That whole thing in the Old Testament, how they, David was supposed to submit and all that, like that, that still applies in the New Testament? Let me share a little story about Paul. And again, you have to ask, why is that story in Scripture? Listen to this. This is in the New Testament, by the way. Paul, this is Acts 23, but Paul has been confirming and defending the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for that reason, has been dragged into court. And gazing intently at the high council, Paul began. Here's his defense. Brothers, I have always lived before God with a clear conscience, and that's as far as he gets, because instantly Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me to be struck like that? And those standing near Paul said to him, do you dare to insult God's high priest? I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realize he was a high priest, Paul replied. For the scriptures say you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. Do you see what's happening here? Paul, first of all, should never have been dragged into court for talking about Jesus. The court's out of line. This high priest here is completely out of line. He's, the high priest is completely out of line also for commanding that Paul be struck because by at least two verses in the Old Testament, Paul is correct. He is out of line for having him hit because he's innocent. So the court's actually out of line. But when Paul realizes who he's talking to, his tone changes because he realizes that even though the court is wrong, I know that they are in authority. And it doesn't change what's right and wrong, but it changes how I talk to them. And by the way, he's quoting Exodus 22, verse 28, which says you should not speak evil about any of your rulers, and he's grabbing that Old Testament rule and making it a moral law that applies today. Amen? And I think that when we say 
we ought to be submitting instead of slandering. That very much lines up with that story. Well, let's go back to our primary passage. Okay, that's just a little supporting one. Here we go. Pay your taxes too for these same reasons. Should you pay your taxes because you're worried about getting caught? Why should you why should a Christian pay their taxes? Out of reverence for Christ, God said pay your taxes, pay your taxes. For the same reasons, for government workers need to get paid. They are serving God in what they do because God has given them a position of authority and authority comes from God. They're serving God in what they do. Give er to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. Jesus even did a miracle once to come up with some tax money to pay a fee. Quit worrying about the taxes and obey the Lord. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. They don't even have to earn the respect and honor. They get it because of who God is. That's why it becomes very applicable what we learned last Sunday, that God is the ultimate authority, and we have to understand that. Because then when we understand these subordinate kind of authorities that he has just given a little piece of his authority to, we need to submit to them and give them respect and honor because they're in that position that represents God. That's why we give them respect and honor. Let me just really tweak this knife right into you for a second here, okay? Let me make this real. Should a police officer ever abuse his authority? Or her authority? No, absolutely not. And actually, God has ways of punishing people for sins like that. But Christians have a clear command of how we look to and act towards people in authority such as, I'm just picking on police officers, such as police officers, to give them respect and honor. Amen? Do you guys believe that Scripture says that? It would be encouraging if you said amen then. Do you believe that God's Word says that we should respect and honor policemen? Amen? Amen. But when people read this passage, they look for a loophole. And they go, well, yeah, but what if our leader, what if our leader is like, you know, and then they describe him like really not nicely. You know what, God, that must, surely that we, you can't expect us to follow a leader like that. You wouldn't have to respect. If you go down that path very far at all, you need to be careful that Satan doesn't wake something up in you that begins to despise authority. We've got to be really careful here because there's passages in the New Testament that make this very clear. For instance, 2 Peter 2.10 and Jude 1.7-8 describe those people who are going to eternal punishment 
of uh, punishment of eternal fire as those who, quote, despise authority. Let me ask you a question according to Jesus' own words. When Jesus told us to love our enemies, should we not be all the more loving people in authority in our country, our leaders, who are not our enemies, they're actually our friends? We just maybe don't see and think the same way they do, and maybe they haven't earned our respect. But if we're supposed to love our enemies, shouldn't we love them? If we're supposed to pray for those who mistreat us, should we not all the more be praying for those who maybe just haven't earned our respect yet? If we're supposed to be good to those who hate us, shouldn't we all the more be being good to those who are just trying their best to lead the country? But maybe don't see have the same conviction as we do. They don't even... They don't hate us. They don't even know us. Listen, the Canadian government, the Manitoban government, they are not persecuting Christians. They're not. At least not yet. Maybe one day they will. But they are not persecuting Christians. But according to Jesus' own words and Paul's own words in this exact, just about two verses ahead or a couple of verses ahead of this same passage, even if they were persecuting us, we should bless them. That's what Jesus says. That's what Paul says. Bless those who persecute you. Our government isn't persecuting us, not even close. Should we not all the more bless them? That's passage number one. <laughs> Let's go to the, the second passage. Okay, we have one more primary passage I want to work through. 1 Peter 2. Whew. Dear friend, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners. Do you guys know why he calls uh, Christians temporary residents and foreigners? Somebody just shout out an answer for that. Earth is not our home. Our home's in heaven. We're going to be in heaven for eternity. We're here for a little, and then we're gone, and then that's it. We're just temporary residents here, okay? Dear friends, I warn you as these temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from your worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. So I just want you to understand what's going on here. In this passage, we're starting in 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12, and then there's going to be a bunch more verses, and then it would spill over to 1 Peter 3, verse 1 and 2. And this passage over here, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, is like a bookend, and when you get to chapter 3, that's like the other bookend. This passage over here says... Live an honorable life so that you will win unbelievers to Jesus. You tracking with me? In, in chapter 3, he's going to say the same thing except in the context of marriage, okay? But it is, he's again going to say the same thing. Live, if you, one of you is an unbeliever, the other, the believer should live in such a way as to lead that person to Jesus. By living an honorable life. Now in between there, he's going to explain what that honorable life looks like. 
And this honorable life in front of unbelievers might be that honorable life that somebody who maybe you live beside, somebody you work with is an unbeliever, somebody who overhears what you talk about at the restaurant, somebody who reads your post on Facebook or Instagram. Maybe the unbeliever is somebody who was the recipient of that email you just forwarded. The unbelievers should see our honorable behavior, and here's how it's described. Next verse. For the Lord's sake, respect all human authority. That's how you live an honorable life. Whether the king as head of state or the officials he's appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. Verse 15. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. So he's describing this honorable living. For you are free, yet you're God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Here's the antidote to what we normally do as evil. Respect everyone and love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God and respect the king. The king, it doesn't say if the king has lived a life so worthy of your respect, then you should respect him. He says, respect the king. He gets that respect because of who God is. Verse 18. He is going to use the most extreme example here to say exactly that same point again. Okay? You who are slaves must accept the authority of your masters with all respect. But what if they're really harsh? Do what they tell you, not only if they're kind and reasonable, but even if they're cruel. And by the way, the Bible is not promoting slavery. It actually speaks, it calls uh, slave trading a sin, okay? But he's using slavery as the most extreme example to make the same point. You must submit to authority even if the authority is in the wrong, even if they're cruel. It's the Christian way of living. And you're thinking, really? That sounds Keep reading. For God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right and patiently endure unfair treatment. Notice how they are patiently enduring it. They're not grouchy about it. They're not complaining about it. They're patiently enduring the unfair treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and then you endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. These people are not grumbling. And then in verse 21, it says, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. Which, of course, lines up with Titus 3, verse 1 2, we just read. Just as Christ suffered for you. Hold on a second. Just as what? Christ suffered for you. He is your example. You want to know what it means to submit to the Canadian government? You go read the book of John, and when you get towards the end of the book of John, and you realize how Jesus submitted to the government, there's your example. He is your example, and you must follow in 
his steps. And by the way, if anybody had reason to not do that, it was him. He never sinned. He didn't deceive anyone. He didn't retaliate when he was insulted. He didn't threaten revenge when he suffered. Instead, he did what David did, and he entrusted his, he left his case in the hands of God. He entrusted himself to God, who always judges fairly. And then in the very next verse, which we know is 3 verse 1, he is going to go on to start talking about marriages. And just like I said, he's going to, talk to tell the husbands to love and respect their wives, and he's going to tell the wife to submit to her husband, and he points out that if the husband is unbelieving, the wife's submission, that honorable behavior and submission to authority is what wins him over. That's exactly how we are supposed to act and behave towards the government. That they would be won over by our behavior. That if they see what you post on Facebook, if they see what you post on Instagram, they'll be won over by your behavior and come to Jesus. And the Bible says we should do that and do it patiently. We should do that without grumbling. We don't sulk around going, oh, the Bible says I have to submit to the government. Oh, this is terrible. No! It says do it without grumbling. Do you know what God does to grumblers? Obedient grumblers? Let me just show you that what I'm saying is true, and then I'll tell you what he does. Philippians 2.14, for instance, says, do everything without or complaining or arguing. James 5 says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge capital J, Jesus, is standing at the door. He is the one who will be the judge if you grumble. Then let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. And I love this passage. This passage, ever since two weeks ago, Stephen Cullen was standing on the stage and he preached, he referred to this, and I, it has been ringing and repeating in my ears ever since. And don't Grumble, as some of them did, he's talking about the Israelites, which we just also were studying earlier in this sermon. Don't grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us. You know what kind of things happened to the Israelites when they grumbled? snake bites yeah there's three but there's in addition to the snake bites there's three specific stories when they grumbled one time it says they grumbled against the lord and he sent fire from heaven and burned the outskirts of their camp would you like to grumble to the lord another time they grumbled against god and he was so frustrated with them he wanted to wipe out the whole lot of them but it says and i quote forgave them and so in his forgiveness, he just made everybody over 20 years old wander, or everybody who was older than 20 years old die in the desert. Everyone else had to wander around for 40 years, except Joshua and Caleb. Because they grumbled against him. And there's another story when they grumbled against God, and you know what he did? The guys who grumbled, he again, it, the Bible says, 
because of their grumbling, he wanted to wipe out the complete lot of them. But he relented. And in his relenting, the ground opened up, swallowed, the ground opened, swallowed three guys and their possessions and families. Fire burned from heaven, came and burned the 250 grumblers. And then a plague came and killed more people in one day than COVID has killed in Canada in this whole year. So we can ask the question, do you want to grumble against God? Probably not. And just so you know, that last story I shared, we'll probably talk about that more next week because the whole purpose of that story, and you can read it in the next chapter, God is saying, respect the people I have put into authority. And that's exactly what he does in the next part of that story. We'll probably talk about that next week, but that's the point. So I want to put a little precursor out there. If the Canadian government tells us to stop talking about Jesus, we are going to continue talking about Jesus. If the government tells us to stop reading any part of Scripture, we will continue reading every part of Scripture. Okay? We will not stop those things. If the government tells us to stop praying, or if the government tells us to change the definition of sin according to Scripture, we are not going to do those things. We'll just keep on doing what we're doing the whole time. That would be a similar model as to what Daniel did when he went to the window to pray. But when Daniel went to the window to pray, even though it was against the law, he didn't fly it in the face of the government. Do you know that when you get to that part of the story, ten times in Daniel he's already called the king, Your Majesty. He has won the king's favor over and over and over again so that when the king realizes that Daniel has gone against his written law, which was foolishly made, it actually saddens him. If we live like that, we would have so much favor with the Canadian government that they would go, man, those Christians, we need them, we love them. What? We made a rule that's going to persecute them? And it should actually make them sad because of that. That would be following the Bible's plan. I think what we need to do, according to Scripture, is instead of slandering our government, we ought to submit to them. And instead of grumbling against them, we ought to pray for them. 1 Timothy 2 says this. I urge, first of all, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority. That's a really clear mandate from Scripture. Here's just a little simple example. I'm going to kind of summarize the whole sermon with this example. This is what lots of Christians do. We put, and I'm using Mr. Trudeau because he's the, basically the highest level of authority in our country. We do this with lots of authority, but I'm going to use his and him as an example. We put him on a dartboard, and that is exactly against Scripture. That is a sin. What we should be doing 
And we get so distracted by putting him on a dartboard that you probably don't even realize that standing behind the dartboard that whole time is a prayer board. And that's where he actually belongs. And so here's what we're going to do. As a church, we're going to put, starting with Mr. Trudeau, where he belongs. On a prayer board instead of a dartboard. This bulletin board, this prayer board, is going to stay there till next Sunday morning. The people that were watching online this morning, they already saw this prayer board. And they already know what I'm about to tell you. This prayer board is going to be here again next Sunday. It's going to stay exactly here, Lord willing. And I'm going to, I wrote a prayer. I asked the Lord how he wanted me to pray. pray and I wrote a little prayer which I'm about to pray. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tack it to this prayer board. And I would love it if you guys believe that what Scripture said is true, what I just told you today. Please join me in praying. We should be praying for kings and all those in authority. We're going to start at the top. If you want to join me in that, there's two ways to do it. You can email me your written prayer, I will print it and post it on this board. Or you can come here on Wednesday when we have a prayer meeting and we'll do the same thing on the Wednesday evening. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, my Lord Jesus Christ, just and Holy Spirit I want to pray for the right honorable Prime Minister of Canada Mr. Justin Trudeau I know that you have anointed him as the Prime Minister of Canada and have intentionally allowed him to be our leader at this time in history and I thank you for him I thank you that he is willing to subject himself to the pressures and criticism that comes to public leaders in an effort to lead this country. Forgive me for my sin of bitterness and slander and malicious way of talking about my Prime Minister. Forgive me for any unwholesome talk that comes out of my mouth. Rather, when I speak about Mr. Trudeau, help me to say what is helpful for building him up according to his needs so that it would benefit whoever hears me. Please give him energy needed for constant demands that are on his attention. Give him the humility to learn from his mistakes and the strength to not take false accusations personally. Allow him to sleep well at night despite the heavy things on his mind. Give him wisdom and direction that comes directly from you. Protect him from hearing lies and receiving incorrect information. Lead him and guide his heart like a river wherever you please in order to serve your purposes and your master plan. Plant people in his life that can tell him about you. Draw him to yourself to reveal to him how much you love him. Help him to be a good dad to his kids and a great husband to his wife. 
Please grant health and protection to him and his family. Help him to find favor with his kids and his wife, that those closest to him would respect and admire him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.